morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you to start off your week. And I'm joined, of course, by Bacha Ungar Sargan on Mondays. Wonderful to see you again, Bacha. It's so great to see you, Robbie. Good morning. Well, let's get right to it. What's our big story of the day? So the U.S. military has shot down a, quote, unidentified object over Lake Huron under orders from President Biden yesterday. The object, which was cruising at about 20,000 feet, showed no indication of having surveillance capabilities. However, military sources told ABC News that the decision was made out of a, quote, abundance of caution. Military jets have now downed four flying objects, four, in U.S. airspace in just eight days, an unprecedented peacetime escalation. A NORAD official told reporters that part of the reason for the repeated shootdowns is a, quote, heightened alert following the Chinese alleged spy balloon that emerged over U.S. airspace late last month. So the military has declined to release any additional details on these unidentified aerial objects. However, F-22 pilots who shot down one such object over Alaska last week complained it, quote, interfered with their sensors, according to Insider. Meanwhile, lawmakers are slamming President Biden over the apparent spiral in U.S. policy. Montana Congressman Steve Daines, who received word from the Defense Department that a flying object was spotted over his district over the weekend, tweeted, quote, the lack of communication from the Biden administration regarding the closing of Montana airspace last night and the recent shootdowns that took place over Alaska and Canada, unacceptable. He continued, without information, the public and media are left to rely on leaks, speculation, and worst of all, disinformation from foreign governments. Hmm. So what do we make of this, Bacha? More, more spy balloons or something <laughs> of that rough size uh, over our, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the airspace of the U.S. being shot down? Now, I, I, t I understand what they're saying. They're saying that, look, the Chinese spy balloon was a pretty unusual situation. And now, because of that, we're on high alert. We're alarmed, so we're paying, I guess, more attention to objects that are passing over U.S. airspace. And so the, the fact that, I, that they're identifying so many more right now might just be a sign that they're actually tracking them more right now, which then raises, I guess, the specter that this is actually pretty standard. We're just not usually paying attention to it. Yeah, I mean, in this case, I have to say, you know, I'm going to go with the quote made to the Chinese premier in 1972 when he was asked about, you know, the impact of the French Revolution. And he said in 1972, it's too soon to tell, which, of course, you know, <laughs> turns out he wasn't actually talking about the French Revolution. But, you know, it's a great historic quote. It's too soon to tell because the Biden administration has not given us enough information to make, uh, you know, a, you know a, a judgment one way or the other. But I totally agree with you. I mean, it does seem that, you know, uh, the normal, you know, that we are now learning about is something that I mean, I had no idea about, certainly. Um, so being on higher, you know, alert, more vigilant because of this Chinese spy balloon, the alleged Chinese spy balloon is sort of letting the public in on information that, you know, we didn't really have before. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see what 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 we're going to be able to make of all this when we have more information. Yeah, assuming we ever do actually get r more information, yeah. we being the American people, because there's nothing the federal government, federal government loves more than just routinely keeping secret all of this kinds of stuff, you know, and, and then they get a classified designation, and then again, I guess they end up in boxes <laughs> in, a, in a former political <laughs> figures or current political <laughs> figures' uh, garages and cars and it's, et cetera. But 
the, the government has just been famously not transparent about any of this stuff. There are so many examples of, you know, uh, airmen see, pilots see stuff that, that doesn't make any sense to them. They pick, up, pick it up on their radars that they can't explain. And that is really has been for a long time looked down upon or is discounted or is not you know publicly discussed or disclosed and uh, and it's uh, it is a it's a transparency issue obviously you know a lot of people have questions is it is it UFOs UFOs just being unidentified flying objects doesn't necessarily mean aliens which is what a lot of people really want to get at um, I you know I remain a, a pretty skeptical on all those fronts. But uh, it is, but I'm not skeptical at all that about the, the government's like conscious decision to mislead the American people, just routinely keeping things classified for no good reason, and uh, that seems to be another case of, of what was occurring here. So now now we can, we're all paying attention. People actually saw the spy balloon. They're outraged. <laughs> they want answers. Hopefully, they'll get some. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that you remain skeptical, Rob, because, you know, with your whole D&D &D situation, I wasn't sure which way you were going to go with that. You could be one of these, you know, alien people um, uh, who, who's, who's deeply committed to that idea. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we classify way too much information and way too many documents as seen by the sort of cascade of presidents and vice presidents who now have been found to have all, all of these, these documents in their, you know, various basements and garages and, and so forth. So I, I could not agree with you more about that point. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that the American people really deserve to know about. I will say this is definitely not at the top of my list of priorities in this moment. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, the last week, a lot of Republicans made a lot of hay of how, you know, the Biden administration waited a few days to shoot down the balloon until what they considered more safe until it was over water as opposed to, uh, you know, Alaska, you know, famous for having so many people that, you know, uh, Republicans were outraged. They were thinking of the so caribou, Bacha. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> now it'll be interesting to see, are they going to be equally outraged at him shooting down everything in sight, right? Every every unidentified object. Yeah, um, before you can get to, to it and study it, because before people can <laughs> learn what it is. Um, you know, I, I think that there's no reason for this to be um, a, a deeply politicized issue. Yeah. What I did think was really telling was how President Biden spoke about or failed to speak about the balloon during the State of the Union address and during an interview with PBS when he was asked about whether, um, you know, the, the balloon and shooting down the spy balloon is going to make relations between the U.S. and China more strained. He said, absolutely not. We've spoken with them. You know, everything's fine. And um, you know, everything shouldn't be fine. Uh, <laughs> um, that was that was um, a real, real violation. And it's something that we should take seriously. And so to the extent that this is reflective of a larger problem that the Democrats have when it comes to China, holding China accountable, both from a foreign policy point of view and from a domestic policy point of view, that makes it an important issue to the extent that it's just, huh, interesting, things are flying around and we don't know what they are, but they're clearly not a danger to us. They have no surveillance capabilities, these last three anyway. Mm -hmm. That, that makes it more just of a sort of human interest story to me than, than a really in, in, uh, important political one. And I really hope that everybody takes it that way. Yeah, you're, you're right that uh, the State of the Union speech, it was very much not at all focused on foreign policy. It was probably the least detailed on foreign policy State of the Union speech I can even remember. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that, that might reflect at least some good political instincts Biden has, I guess, to talk about domestic issues, um, you know, people's, people's pocket 
books, what's what's really mattering to them. But as you often point out, Bacha, you know, China is a domestic policy issue as well, given all the economic considerations. And uh, I don't know how the American people feel about Joe Biden's handling of this relationship. I'm not even sure what his philosophy is with respect to this relationship, because obviously you have you know, members of, of Team Blue, of, of the not of the Biden administration, I guess, necessarily, but Nancy Pelosi, very high-ranking Democratic official, you know, uh, uh, visiting Taiwan and kind of articulating a hawkish position that I guess is the, is the Biden position, but not one he talks about. So if he doesn't, you know, if he departs from it, he hasn't made it clear. It just ends up being very confused, uh, as, as I think his foreign policy often is, even <laughs> as I agree with, you know, yeah. decisions like, you know, g getting out of Afghanistan, not having regime change wars everywhere, although then he's very much um, contradicted that by what he's doing with Ukraine and Russia. So it's a very, I, I don't think the American people know exactly what, yeah, how does Biden react to something like a Chinese spy balloon flying over the U.S.? Is he outraged? Does he want to, you know, is, does he take a very hawkish Republican? Does he want to start launching missiles? Or does he say, yeah, it's not really a big deal. We'll shoot it down, you know, tomorrow or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it seems that there's a lot of appetite for escalation on the Ukraine-Russia front after some reluctance, as you point out. But when it comes to people who seem to be attacking us, there's very little very little appetite for, for taking a stand on that front. I, I will just mention, Robbie, that the, the White House initially, there was reporting that they opposed Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And even there, I mean, I, I think that was, you know, it was an interesting situation because Visiting Taiwan is not like saying we're going to take a strong stand against China on, on behalf of Americans, right? That is not an America first position, right? It is, it is sort of um, hawkish vis-a-vis -vis China, but on behalf of another country. And so I think that it was, you know, it was correct for Biden to say, why are we enraging them on, on, on their behalf, right? Because what, you know, what that has to do with us you know, you can make the argument that, you know, Taiwan is an ally. We should, you know, be, be standing up for allies. It's true. But do we have to be out there enraging the people who are have issues with people who are our allies? And that's exactly the problem we have with Ukraine, where it's gone from saying, look, Ukraine is an ally. We're going to do what we can to support them to really the U.S. getting more and more invested in that conflict um, sending out weaponry and tanks that require data processing on the homeland, right? So, uh, you know, the, the the lines start to get really blurry about whether or not we are actually engaged in warfare there, um, you know, in a hot war with Russia, which is not something that the American people want. It is not something they voted on. But again, I think you're absolutely right. It stems from the Biden administration's sort of um, uh, ambivalence when it comes to all of these different foreign policy questions. Mm. Well, we'll keep watching the skies, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later with an actual expert, so you'll definitely want to watch that. We'll also have a couple thoughts to express on the Super Bowl, the commercials, the game itself, and of course the halftime show. Stay with us, more Rising right after this. is demanding NATO hold an emergency summit to discuss Seymour Hersh's reporting that the Nord Stream pipeline was intentionally sabotaged by the U.S. A spokeswoman for the Russian Foreign Ministry said in a statement, quote, there are more than enough facts here. The explosion of the pipeline, the presence of a motive, circumstantial evidence obtained by journalists. So when will an emergency NATO summit meet to review the situation? 
though the White House slammed claims that the CIA blew up the pipeline as, quote, utterly false and complete fiction, Hirsch reports that the orders came directly from President Biden himself. What do you make of this story, Robbie? Well, we talked about this a few days ago. Uh, Brianna and I talked about it. Seymour Hirsch is a very credible journalist who's done a lot of terrific work in the past. His work is not beyond criticism. It, it has been criticized for inaccuracies as well. But that doesn't discredit this. Uh, this is impressive reporting. And also, you know, he's, he's filling in gaps for something the U.S. itself said, right? There was the statement from U.S. officials that, that, that the ominous kind of suggestion that something would happen to have Nordstrom 2 not function. So with all that in mind, and of course, you know, the U.S. has a long history of, like many other governments, of sabotage and interference and, and all sorts of things. You know, the, the additional details that it was this diving team based out of Florida, um, all sounds very plausible uh, to me. However, the, the, the Substack post where he published it, you know, he was only, he's relying on what seems to be, from my reading of it, a single unnamed source. So that maybe this is a very knowledgeable person who is like unimpeachable, but I can't evaluate that because I don't know who it is. And, and also, because he just published this on Substack, it wasn't, you know, like published by the New Republic or the New York Times or, or Reason Magazine or Newsweek, right? You or I, as an editor, didn't get to say, well, who was this sort? You know, you don't have to publicly disclose it, but you have to tell the editor so they know. Like, it didn't do any of that. So because of all that, I, I can only take it, I, I can only, it can only take me so far in, uh, in thinking that, you know, this kind of changes the narrative or makes it more likely that, that the U.S. did it. What's your, what's your thinking? Yeah, I mean, a single unnamed source, right, is not the standard we generally think of for the best quality journalism, although I have no problem with him publishing it. If, if a source told him that, of course, the, I don't. I believe 100% that he was told this by the source. I don't think he made that up, right? That yeah. he has every right to publish that. And, you know, you take it with a grain of salt, right? Like, and a single unnamed source told him this. Okay, fine. Um, you know, I will say of the, you know, the four potential culprits here, um, you know, Russia, the U.S., the Ukraine, and some other NATO country, um, the U.S. is sort of low on the list for me of, of people who really have a motive here, um, you know, maybe just above Russia, but certainly far below Ukraine. Um, you know, now we, we don't have that enough information to say, so I don't want to, like, make a speculation here, but I've never been convinced that we had a strong motive to do this. Um, I, 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 I don't, this doesn't strike me as characteristic of President Biden. We've been talking today a lot about how, um, you know, muddled his foreign policy has been. And this action would have been the kind of thing that I think somebody with much more of an appetite for big statements um, on the foreign policy front um, would have done. All of that, all of which is, but, but is to say, I don't think there's anything wrong with there being a NATO investigation into it, it does seem like an important thing to know, to find out, you know? Like, right. I would like more information about this. And I think the fact that Russia is calling for a NATO investigation, to me, suggests that they still, to a certain extent, you know, <laughs> respect some aspect of NATO. Yeah, that is interesting. In they're play, they're, you're, you're right, right that they're, they're, um, they're speaking to NATO's credibility is kind of actually funny. Exactly. Yeah. 
I, I think that's very heartening, yeah. you know, to me to say that they are they see in NATO a body worthy of carrying out an investigation. To me, that is that's that's the most that's the headline here is that Russia is still engaging at that level with NATO as a body. Um, and I think that we should want answers. There should be an investigation, not because Russia's calling for it, but because it is actually really important who did this. Right. And the only reason they're not doing it is because it harmed Russia and everybody hates Russia now, right? And Russia's the big bad and the big evil right now. That's not a good enough reason for us to simply wash our hands of this. Like, I would like more information. So I think there should be an, a, a NATO investigation into yeah. this. I agree with that. I, I want to know if it was the U.S. because I want to hold the government accountable. If it was, I exactly. don't think it was. It would have been. It would have been appropriate. We're not at war with Russia. We're not. Uh, you, you, we're not actually committed, but because because of NATO to defending Ukraine. Ukraine is not actually part of NATO. Um, this has already gone far beyond, you know, what I think is necessarily appropriate without greater oversight. I guess Congress has to at least approve uh, the weapons, but they didn't have to approve. They had no knowledge of this. My understanding is that uh, Seymour Hersh is alleging that the Gang of Eight, like certain con the, the, the relevant Congress people who are supposed to be informed by top secret stuff weren't kept in the loop because they wanted to make sure no one could trace it to the U.S. That, you know, that's his thinking. And again, take that with a grain of salt. But that is totally inappropriate to me if that's accurate. And there needs to be, people need to be held accountable for what's sabotaging a pipeline that provides an ally, Germany, with, uh, with, uh, with resources. That's, uh, that's, it's, that's nuts. And, now, and we cannot discount the fact that Biden said, he once said, if Russia invades, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. So I, I think he's being... He's being uh, he, he looks plausibly guilty based on rhetoric from Biden and other uh, administration officials uh, kind of mal maliciously suggesting something would go with, wrong with, with Nord Stream. Now, maybe they were saying that to try to deter Russia from doing anything, not because they were going to follow through on that threat. I don't think it's out of character necessarily for the U.S. government. I know the government's lie. Our government is no different. I have I have a differences of opinion with some, I think, on, on the left, on the right, I don't know on what, on what fringes, who kind of think the worst of the U.S. government, but like it's specifically the U.S. government, like all other governments, they kind of feel more trusting of. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think we, the U.S. is more reprehensible or more untrustworthy than other governments. I think government by its nature creates bureaucracies that try to shield people from the truth, you know, lies to people, uh, 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 works in its self-interest, um, et cetera, you know, can be advised by cabals of powerful interests. That's true of all governments. It's not like more true of the U.S. government. So we could do something like this. I wouldn't put it past us. I don't think it's necessarily the most likely thing. And I, I, I don't, then people say, well, why would Russia do it? I, well, I, why, would the, why would the U.S. do it? I, it doesn't, if someone did something that it was destructive and doesn't make a lot of sense. Russia is the country like invading another country right now. So I, we can't like rule that out. I don't know that the Ukrainians have the capability, you would understand why they would do it. I don't know that they have the capability to do it. But, uh, but it is a mystery that absolutely demands further investigation because if it's a, us, I, I want to know and hold the relevant officials accountable. Yeah, 100 percent. I don't mean to be like letting the U.S. government off the hook or Biden yeah. off the hook. Um, you know, I do think when he said there would be no more Nord Stream, I mean, Nord Stream 2, he could have been referring to just, you know, his belief that the Germans would, you know, 
you know, I don't know, start, you know, have a complete embargo on, on, on Russian gas. I mean, you know, there's many ways to interpret that. Plus, we know that, you know, President Biden runs his mouth and says things that, you know, he often doesn't mean, right? So he, you know, he's the gaff king. So I wouldn't, I, to me, that's, you know, to get from there to this was the work of the U.S. government is, is a bit of a stretch, especially because, like, you know, we keep saying, like, the what is the motive there? It was at a time when, you know, U.S. gas prices were, you know, so astronomically high. I mean, the idea that Biden would have done anything that would have pushed them higher just seemed to me not likely. But I, I, I want more information like you. I think it's a great idea. NATO should definitely have an investigation. And, you know, the U.S. government should be more forthcoming about, you know, give us something that we can hang our hat on when we say it doesn't seem like something they did. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. What's on your radar, Bacha? Over the past 15 years, the Motley Coalition that makes up the Democratic Party has undergone what one researcher is calling a dramatic demographic change in a new paper published by the Manhattan Institute. Political scientist Zach Goldberg, the academic who first uncovered the Great Awakening, has found a new and growing class divide not just between the Democrats and the Republicans, but within the Democratic Party itself. And it's a divide that maps onto race. Though the white share of the Democratic Party has declined significantly, the attrition has been mostly from whites without a college degree. The white Americans who remain Democrats are increasingly likely to be college educated, while non-white Democrats remain mostly non-college educated. This new class divide within the Democratic coalition marries white elites with working class people of color, quote, exacerbating socioeconomic inequalities within the coalition, as Goldberg put it. Quote, those with a college education tend to be wealthier and have higher socioeconomic status than those without, but they also tend to be more socially liberal and more likely to prioritize post-material moral concerns over kitchen table issues, writes Goldberg. And because education and wealth correlate with political power, the Democratic Party will likely become a majority-minority party relatively soon but one that is still largely and disproportionately steered by liberal college-educated whites, writes Goldberg. We've already seen where the over-credentialed elite has navigated what was once the party of labor, radically astray from the priorities of the working class. Consider the defund the police movement, so popular among the denizens of gated communities and liberal enclaves with private security, yet so unpopular with black Americans, less than 20% of whom supported the movement. Or consider the kind of people who list climate change as a major threat and extremely important issue, for which there exists a third 30-point gap separating Democrats overall from Black Democrats specifically. Or consider last month's finding from the Pew Research Center. Pew found a huge difference between white and Black Democrats on the question of transgender identity. When it comes to gender, fully 72% of white Democrats believe that whether a person is a man or a woman is a matter of subjective identity, compared to just 33% of Black Democrats. 66% of Black Democrats, like 60% of Americans overall, believe that whether a person is a man or a woman is decided by the sex he or she is assigned at birth. In other words, two-thirds of Black Americans totally reject the very concept of transgenderism. Perhaps even more surprising is that this number has risen significantly by 11% since 2017, Pew found. When it comes to issues of gender and identity, Black Americans, like Americans more generally, 
are getting more conservative, although not importantly on questions like gay marriage, for which everybody is getting more and more accepting. Of course, you wouldn't know this from the kinds of proposals you hear from the party that purports to represent black voters. And if you wanna know why, consider that in addition to the racial divide separating black and white Democrats over the trans issue, there is also a class divide. Pew found that among college educated Democrats, 72% said, quote, a greater acceptance of transgender people is good for society compared to just 45% with a high school diploma or less. This divide is the only endgame in a party in which a racial divide is mapped onto a class divide, but it's not just on cultural issues or questions of identity. You can see the two-tiered nature of the new Democratic Party and the way the party has flipped its position on immigration. Once the Democrats viewed limiting immigration as a huge priority because it was seen correctly as crucial to protecting working class jobs and wages. As recently as 2015, Bernie Sanders was scoffing at the suggestion of open borders as a, quote, Koch brothers proposal, though by 2020, he was committing to decriminalizing illegal border crossing. But even by 2015, Sanders's position was a nostalgic throwback to a time when the Democratic Party was truly the party of labor. National unions themselves underwent this change on immigration, reflective of a larger shift towards a college-educated leadership that has been alienating rank-and-file members, presaging the development in the Democratic Party more broadly. Meanwhile, Black Americans remain deeply skeptical about unfettered immigration. Black Americans are more supportive of limiting immigration than any other bloc of the Democratic coalition, the sociologist Musa Algarbi reported. And Hispanics actually tend to be more concerned about illegal immigration than are whites or blacks. The support Black and Hispanic Americans have for securing the border puts the lie to the slander that it's white supremacy that makes Americans worried about mass immigration, a slander that white over-credentialed Democrats created to smear Republicans, safe from the pinch of competition from laborers without an education from other countries. Meanwhile, they sentence their own voters to pay the price for their vanity morals. Expect much more of this. In his State of the Union address, President Biden made an impassioned plea to blue-collar voters that Democrats are still the party of labor. With an emphasis on reshoring manufacturing and fighting fentanyl, he sounded a lot like President Trump. Yet skeptics heard only hot air. And you can understand why the next day, when James Carville, the famous Democratic consultant and strategist, called the Republicans white trash for their vocal opposition to the president. Take a look at this. Well, uh, you know, I told people I have a clue a PhD in white trashology, and you saw real white trash on display. Mm. And let me say something about Congressman Marjorie Taylor Grant. She dresses like white trash. She really needs a fashion consultant. Could I recommend George Santos? He, he could do a good job of, of dressing up where she doesn't announce her white trashdom by her, her own well, clothes. Well, I'll tell you, James... This sounds like it's about a political divide, but it's not. It's about the disgust that credentialed elites have for the working class. And make no mistake about it, it's coming home to roost in their own party. Zach Goldberg, the academic who first uncovered the Great Awakening and wrote this great paper from the Manhattan Institute, now joins us to weigh in. Zach, welcome to Rising. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So y your work was so crucial to my book. I could not have written my book without your 
amazing, amazing work. Tell us about what made you first do the research that uncovered the Great Awakening. And then I also want you to talk a little bit about the role that the media has played, because your your, your work focuses on that, and it's extremely important. Yeah. Um, and that actually will, I guess, bring us to how I study this topic about educational polarization. Um, and how that's remaking uh, the two parties. Uh, essentially, my, I guess, interest or my uh, foray into the Great Awakening uh, occurred as a result of wanting to understand Trump voters, just like all other political scientists in the wake of the 2016 election. Uh, you know, was probably one of the more unconventional presidential candidates in history. And, uh, you know, we could save all the isms, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Everybody was really wondering, you know, what is really driving all these people to vote for Trump? And I was looking to compare, you know, the attitudes of Trump voters with Romney voters uh, and, you know, and past um, voters of Republican presidents. And when I actually looked at the data, uh, especially, uh, you, know, um, you know, attitudes towards Muslims, attitudes towards just everything. And when I looked at the, and I compared attitudes across these uh, different GOP voters, I noticed that, you know what, there's not that big of a difference between a Trump voter in 2016 and a Romney voter in 2012. Um, in some ways, they're actually a little bit more moderate on some issues, on economic issues. Um, anyways, I was expecting to see a massive gulf between the racism of the 2016 Trump voters and the Romney voters, and I didn't really see much, but what I did see was a really, an, unprecedented growth in the liberal direction among, uh, you know, Democratic voters, you know, between Hillary voters in 2016 and the Obama voters of 2012. And I wanted to see, you know, okay, this is pretty unprecedented. You know, when do these changes really begin? And this is kind of what brought me to really look at hundreds and hundreds of different, uh, you know, measures of attitudes across time to really trace when this big shift in democratic public opinion or liberal white liberal public opinion, especially uh, had occurred. Um, and from what I could see in the data, uh, especially on race, that it, it occurred around uh, 2013, 2014, which incidentally is the uh, marks or coincides with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the rise of social media and a lot of a rise of a lot of trends, including trends in mental uh, health, which, you know, maybe we'll have time to talk about today, but is definitely, uh, you know, over, it's overlapping with that, you know, the great awakening. You know, um, it, it's funny, though, because we're assured all the time by the media, we, I'll hear claims that, oh, the Democratic Party has stayed right where it is ideologically, and the Republican Party just keeps moving further and further and further right. And you're saying your research shows the opposite. Yeah, and it's not, not just my research. If you look at most issues, uh, uh, you, you'll, you'll find maybe an issue or two where the Republicans, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Republican base, uh, you know, has moved to the right. But by and large, let's say in, uh, you know, 85 to 90 percent of all issues, especially social issues, it's been the Democrats having lurching to the left. Uh, and even Republican voters have also kind of moved in a liberal direction, just not as quickly as those on the left. So. It kind of looks like if you were to just ignore the movement of those to the left, it looks like you know, those on the right are really very regressive in a lot of these issues. It just they haven't moved as quickly into the same at the same clip as those on the left. 
So, um, yeah, that's why it appears uh, as any, like I said, you could find some issues maybe that they've moved to the right, but uh, by and large on immigration, especially, which they're tied to being, you know, more radical, or really they haven't moved in decades. <laughs> they were in the same position. It just, what happens that you had politicians like Trump that are kind of playing to this already pre-existing sentiment that's always existed. It hasn't really changed much among uh, rank and file, um, you know, conservatives. But uh, so, now so, you have so Zach, t talk us through how the media has played a role in creating um, the misapprehension that Robbie just pointed out. Like, what is the role the media has played, both in fomenting the Great Awakening and also in t trying to convince us that it's Republicans who have become more extreme when it's actually the left that has? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, my, my dissertation work has looked at, uh, you know, the trends in the frequency at which the media is covering certain topics, uh, such as racism, such as white supremacy, um, such as uh, uh, privilege, you know, all the buzzwords. Uh, you know, these are terms uh, that really were only very sparingly used back, let's say, as recently, even as like 20 years ago. Uh, so, uh, and in around 2000, like I said, around 2012, during that period, let's say the, the first years, the early years of the second Obama term, you see this um, massive spike in uh, interest in, in or not interest, in the amount of, uh, uh, in the frequency that the media is using terms like racist. And I think a part of that, and I don't mention this explicitly in my dissertation, but I think a part of that is the Tea Party, the rise of the Tea Party was construed in uh, a lot of liberal circles as being, uh, I guess, racially motivated. Um, and maybe there is, the, you know, such racial motivations maybe were present, you know, they were an element among the wider Tea Party, but the Tea Party is a very large, diverse group. And I think that there was, um, you know, a desire to kind of reduce it all to just racism, you know, all opposition to Obama. Just, And I think that's why you saw those initial rises in interest in racism and white supremacy in 2012 or so. And then after that, you had the Black Lives Matter, uh, the, you know, in 2013, the Trayvon Martin, uh, that case. Uh, and you start to see um, not only not only a change in the, you know, the media mentions of racist, but also changing the framing of certain topics, uh, you know, like systemic racism, institutional racism. These are academic terms that, you know, have been around since the 1970s. And we really, you know, they've been very rarely used, seldom used in the media. But during this period, you start to see a very rapid rise, a steady rise in the extent that these issues are, are being viewed or, um, you know, in terms of systemic racism, for instance. That's not something, mm -hmm. you know, a frame that the media has used uh, very much until recently. Um, so. Uh, well, Zach, we're, we're going to have to leave it at that. We're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us and for your incredibly important work. Keep it up. Take heart. I mean, it's just I cannot stress this enough. Your work is so crucial. Thank you so much for doing it and for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Hope to be back. There'll be more rising right after this. Stay with us. President Joe Biden's decision to break the recent tradition of sitting for an interview with the news network broadcasting the Super Bowl after a series of discussions between Fox and White House officials 
fell through. This is according to NBC News. However, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre tweeted this. The president was looking forward to an interview with Vox to discuss the Super Bowl, the State of the Union, and critical issues impacting everyday lives of black Americans. We've been informed that Fox Corp has asked for the interview to be canceled. CNN's senior media reporter Oliver Darcy spoke with the network's anchor Jim Acosta on the matter. Let's watch. President, this current president doesn't want to do it. Maybe future presidents won't want to do it. Yeah, Jim, I think this really underscores um, the level of commitment uh, Biden has showed to icing out Fox. As you, as you said, he hasn't granted uh, this right-wing talk channel uh, any interviews since he's been president. And you can imagine why. I mean, if you watch this channel, it, it's very clear there's a, there's a strong animus toward him, toward his administration. And at nighttime, you have extremists, people like Tucker Carlson, who are going on, on these rants, who are spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories about uh, things from the vaccines to January 6th. And so I think for this president, he has decided, you know, he's not going to call out the channel. He's not going to go to war with it in that way, but he's not going to give it any credence by appearing on. That's true. And I mean, one of the things that you have to think about is whether or not, um, you know, this battle is worth it. I mean, a lot of people just want to watch football. Yeah, a lot of people want to watch football. But, you know, I mean, a lot of people do turn into tune into this game. So it is a big platform that he is effectively giving up by not appearing on Fox. You know, um, the Super Bowl this year, people are expecting maybe for over 100 million viewers to tune into the Super Bowl. And so by not appearing, he is giving up that platform. But I, I think his administration, he has decided that he just doesn't want to, um, he just does not want to appear on this channel that is really um, profits off of spreading misinformation and lies uh, about his his administration. Hmm. I, I like how it, at first uh, Oliver Darcy there makes it sound like, well, this is some fringe channel, you know, peddling what was it, misinformation, extremist, right wing talk channel, extremist. And then later has to concede with a ton of people watching, way more people than watching the network that he's on. Uh, you know, he's, he's calling out Tucker by name. But Tucker, uh, uh, The Five, Gutfeld, all have massive ratings. You know, the most watched uh, programs of these natures. Gutfeld actually, uh, did you catch that, Bacha? Gutfeld advertised during the Super Bowl. I saw a very quick, it was a pretty f funny commercial making a joke about how, how, um, how much money these commercials cost and how short they have to be. But uh, our friend Kat Timf uh, got an appearance, Tyrus got an appearance. So that was interesting to see. Yes, I was aware of that because I was on Gutfeld's show last week and they played uh, the short clip. I thought it was pretty funny as well. There's so much envy and jealousy for Fox News from the other networks because Fox is crushing it in terms of ratings. And the reason they're crushing it in terms of ratings is A, because they're giving people what they want and B, because the other networks are so terrible. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's, I, I just, I, you can't believe anything you hear about it because there's just, it's just so colored by, you know, envy. At, at the same time, it absolutely dis despicable that the president gave up this opportunity to speak to millions and millions and millions of Americans. We know that Tucker Carlson is the most watched show on cable news, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats. 
You know, there, there's just this is a huge audience. And for the president to stonewall like th them like that, it just puts the lie to his claim to represent unity because he really does think he paints the entire Republican Party with an extremist brush. They feel it. They sense it. And whenever he starts talking about unity, that's what they hear. The president who won't sit down with the only network that would actually give him a difficult interview. He finally sat down with PBS, but the interview was just I mean, the questions themselves just set him up in the most gentle way. Now, it's a very difficult task. You know, the interviewer got 15 minutes. It, when you get such a short time, you're constantly having to choose between asking follow-up questions and getting to the next question. It's an agonizing choice, as you know, Robbie. You know, as journalists, we're constantly making those decisions. I, but but, but it was just the softness, the softballing. And honestly, Robbie, I don't even know that I would be able to do better because it's very hard to sit opposite a senior who's, um, you know, searching for words, flood being words and give them a hard time. I mean, it, it, it's just hard. You have to overcome that as a mm -hmm. journalist dealing with a president who's struggling with the things President Biden is struggling with. And yeah. that's why it's so important that Fox News exists and that they be given the opportunity to interview him because they would be able to do it. And I, I just have to say one more thing. The, the, the Biden administration trying to set up an interview with this tiny Fox soul, you know, in the hopes of getting a black interviewer banking on the idea that like that's how they would get the softball interview while still claiming to be on Fox. It's just disgusting the way yeah. that they the yeah. way they weaponize race against Americans. It's just it really is appalling. You know, the, it's just it's just disgusting. I really and, was disgusted to see all that. And, and no one was saying that, like, Joe Biden has to be interviewed by Tucker Carlson, be interviewed by exactly. Brett Baer. He can be interviewed by Martha McCallum. He can be interviewed by Dana Perino. There are all sorts of exactly. newsier, Hemmer, you know, uh, totally. people on, on the network. Pick one. But, uh, of course, he didn't. Meanwhile, President Trump blasted Rihanna's performance as a, quote, <laughs> epic fail. Writing on True Social, Rihanna gave, without question, the single worst halftime show in Super Bowl history, this after insulting far more than half of our nation, which is already in serious decline with her foul and insulting language. Um, not for the first time. I am way apart from Donald Trump on this. I thought it was a great performance. I'm already a fan of Rihanna. I grew up liking her music, so I was prepared to like it. Um, I actually thought, you know, from from a conservative standpoint, actually, it was it was kind of a it was kind of a tame performance. It wasn't particularly risque, and, and I'm, I'm saying that in a in a in a positive way. I, I don't think there was much to complain about. It was a, it was a respectful performance. Um, she was revealing, I, I think, that she was was pregnant, and it was kind of nice and respectful of that, and uh, and I enjoyed it, and so did most people, you know, all across the political spectrum that I talked to. So I think Trump might be a little out of step with the culture on this one. What did you think, Bacha? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like he wrote that tweet before the performance. <clears throat> I I think one of my <clears throat> excuse me, one of my most conservative um, points of view is. Um, when I see a woman who is a millionaire, a billionaire, um, still um, engaging in an art form that is extremely sexualizing, because you would think the point of becoming a millionaire or a billionaire is to no longer have to do that. Now, I know that that's very um, anti-feminist and conservative. I go back and forth. I can see both sides of it. But there, I have an instinctive reaction to it. And 
exactly like you said, there was none of that last night. Rihanna put on a performance that was befitting of a mother. I have to say, like, it just, it was the first thing that stood out. She was very modestly attired. She was totally covered. Um, you could see that, you know, it was either, I couldn't tell initially if it was a postpartum body or if she was actually pregnant, but either way, it was beautiful to see. And she, it was very dignified. There was really, it was such a strong contrast to um, the Sam Smith performance in which he was um, dressed as the devil and be, you know, the extremely sexual performance from the Grammys a week ago. Um, it was just, it seemed like an extremely dignified performance. And I, I, I kept thinking, this is what happens when a woman has a baby and she wants her child to be able to watch the performance. I, I completely agree with your assessment. You know, I, I can't imagine what conservatives would have objected to there was just she barely even danced she was mostly just singing and you know like I said modestly clad and then all of these dancers around her so I I loved it I thought it was great I thought she looked like a, a millionaire billionaire like that's exactly what's supposed to happen you know you can you can move up the ladder and then you know um anyway I know this is a, a very uh, a hot take and a controversial take but I completely agree with you I, and I think it was uh it was a beautiful performance yeah it really let the choreography which I, it was fantastic it was, it was really yeah. showed off because there was nothing, you know, d deliberately like provoking to try to stand out, which, which, contrasting with yeah the other performance um, you highlighted. You know, you don't need to always go like so over the top or something like that. I really enjoyed it, and and most people seem to enjoy the. Um, you know, I was checking social media. I saw a lot of praise for it from again from it was not it didn't seem to fall into like a like right people hated it and and liberals liked it it seemed like you know most people most people liked it i i like the whole as i'm getting older bacha i don't i see how you feel about this i i'm starting to appreciate you know i'm not a, i'm not a big sports person i did watch almost the entire sports uh the entire super bowl i thought it was a great game uh, i am i am be coming to appreciate more as like our generation becomes like the old generation is that things that are the Super Bowl you know, is watched by older people, people. I, I don't know how interest, interested Gen Z is in even like the concept of TV to begin with. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the ads and a lot of the cultural aspects of it are actually playing to people of our age and older. Um, it, as apart from a lot of what I see in like the YouTube ecosystem, so it's kind of, it's kind of nice to be pandered to every now and then. I don't know how much longer it will last, <laughs> but but uh, probably at the Super Bowl we have a, a couple more years of it at least. <laughs> I, I there were two ads that rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I, I mean, so a lot of them were really moving. Um, the one about the, the the dying dog. I think we are all in agreement that that was. That was a war crime, and and uh, you know the <laughs> should not have been shown. But um, the, there was there were two in which celebrity in which celebrity actors were play acting at having working class jobs. In one, Bradley Cooper was pretending to work for T-Mobile, and the other one, Ben Affleck was. Ben Affleck was working at a Dunkin' Donuts mm -hmm. and, you know, serving people. And then um, J-Lo pulls up in her car and she says to him, is this what you've been doing when you tell me you're going to work, you know, in this outrage? Mm -hmm. I felt that, that that really did rub me the wrong way. Like these these jobs aren't jokes for, you know, billionaires. You know what I mean? Like that is work and that would be dignified work if it was you know, paid a living wage. And so to, to, to make jest of that as though this is something we should be mocking. I know I'm taking it too seriously. It's just an ad. They just wanted to get, you know, Ben Affleck's name under Dunkin' Donuts and show his, you know, approval of the brand or whatever. But it, it really did rug me the wrong way. Like why? Like, it's not a joke. Like, there's, there's, you know, three million people who work in, um, who are, who are cashiers who do that job in America, and 
we should treat them with respect. And there was something about it that not him pretending to be one so much as the response she had, like, of course, she would never dream of being in a relationship with somebody like that one. Like, why not? Like, she's already so rich. She she's she's the first person in America who could afford to to marry somebody who works at Dunkin Donuts. So that rubbed me a little bit the wrong mm. way. But, um, you know, it's it, what's fun about it, Robbie, for me is watching something that, you know, so many other Americans are watching. Like there's something about that that's really moving and it makes you feel connected to people, even though I have to admit I I did veer away from I did watch other things during the sports parts because I don't really understand the rules of football. <laughs> um, and no matter how many times people explain it to me, it's gone the next time it comes on. But, I, you know, being engaged in something that so many of your fellow Americans are doing like it feels good. Mm. My favorite ad was probably, unsurprisingly, the uh, the Matrix-style fight between the representatives of the two beer companies, and yes, that I, I, was great. just because I like Matrix-style fighting. <laughs> All right, those great. are our takes, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. Over the weekend, we learned the U.S. shot down another flying vessel in the sky, this time over Lake Huron in Michigan, according to ABC News. The unidentified aerial object appeared to be of octagonal shape, and it marks the latest in a slew of such episodes since the end of January, including the infamous Chinese spy balloon. Officials have not yet confirmed the nature of these flying objects. A New York Times story initially reported that the Pentagon scrapped any possibility of extraterrestrial activity, but then later updated its report following a press conference Sunday in which Air Force General Glenn Van Herc said they are keeping an open mind, saying, quote, I haven't ruled out anything at this point. We continue to assess every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America with the attempt to identify it. Someone who has witnessed firsthand unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAP, on a regular basis is Ryan Graves, a former F-18 pilot and chair of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and UAP Integration and Outreach Committee. In an op-ed, he called on Congress to tell the American people the truth about these unexplained events. We're happy to welcome him on today to elaborate. Hello, Ryan. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So the spy balloon happens, and I, most people have the reaction like, what is this? How, how common is this? Well, this is so weird for us to not know what this is. And then you know, over the last several days, we've had a, a few more unidentified aerial phenomena. We're being told that's because in the wake of the spy balloon, the U.S. is monitoring more closely, monitoring the skies much more closely, which raises the possibility that this is actually pretty standard. They're just not paying as much attention to it. Uh, where does someone, you know, with your history and your experience, um, um, come at this? What, what should people know about what we're hearing about that the U.S. is seeing? So, you know, first, uh, I'm very glad to see that we're starting to recognize things on our radar systems that we've uh, ignored in the past. Uh, unfortunately, it took a, a balloon that people could look out and take pictures with with their cameras from the ground to really bring attention to the matter. But this is something we've been talking about for a number of years. Um, there are incursions in our airspace and off our coast, and we don't necessarily know what they all are. Um, uh, the working assumption is that, you know, there is some foreign adversary that is either spying off our coast or there is something else out there that is yet to be defined at this point. I think we're seeing now that the aperture is being opened up a little bit, just how many data points there are out there uh, that could fall under either one of those categories. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for your service um, and for this great piece uh, in which you write. And here's a quote. 
why don't we have more data on these unidentified anomalous phenomena? Stigma. I know the fear of stigma is a major problem because I was the first active duty fighter pilot to come forward publicly about regular sightings of UAP, and it was not easy. There's been little support or incentive for aircrew to speak publicly on this topic. There was no upside to reporting hard to explain sightings within the chain of command, let alone doing so publicly. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like coming forward. Well, certainly, you know, there's a lot of ridicule on this topic and for an aviator within the military and also within uh, your commercial markets, your 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 airlines, uh, there's a big fear that you're going to be branded as uh, unfit to fly. And if that happens, whether that's due to some type of physical ailment or or uh, mental illness or perceived, you know, mental instability, as this topic was once relegated to. Uh, then people are not going to be incentivized at all to come up and talk about it because they're going to fear for their careers. Pilots invest tremendous amounts of time and energy and and money in order to get to where they are in their careers. So uh, to jeopardize that, uh, to stick their necks out like that, um, there's really no incentive to do so with the current way this topic is viewed. We've been talking so much in the media lately about classified documents, you know, boxes of them being found um, in uh, in Donald Trump's resident, in uh, residence, Joe Biden's residence, Mike Pence, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. And I keep saying that I, I think the media is missing the problem here. Yeah, they, they tried it first. They tried to make it a very anti-Trump thing, and then when it turned out Biden had it too, was uh, maybe. Our, our our careless elderly members of government, but I'm thinking, well, maybe they just they reflexively classify so many things, even though the American people should have access to a lot more uh, uh, documents, even documents having to do with national security, and and they're they're overly restricting everything. And I think you've argued that that has been the case specifically with matters pertaining to what you're describing, unidentified aerial phenomenon. There's just been knee-jerk secrecy uh, uh, about it, which has probably fed some aspects of the public's hysteria or paranoia or anything else, because their, their, their bottom line is to just not tell you things that they've noticed, things that they're seeing, just because. Well, you know, I think that there is a classification, overclassification problem in this country. Our system isn't necessarily built to streamline information from the classified side to the more open side. Uh, However, I haven't necessarily been seeing uh, any hysterics or anything from uh, what we've been seeing in the the news recently. Uh, I think people should be interested to know what's going on over their heads. I think it's been a shame and an oversight that there hasn't been more attention on this area in the past. Uh, So overclassification certainly is a problem. But as we've seen with the first balloon, uh, citizens can look up uh, themselves and take pictures of things uh, that we're not quite sure they belong there. So, Ryan, you've seen a lot of these unidentified anomalous phenomena. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how many and also aliens? I mean, where <laughs> where do you come down on that question? So, you know, we were seeing objects off the coast in, in uh, the F-18 Super Hornet after we upgraded our radars in our working areas on a regular basis, nearly daily. Uh, and that occurred right after um, we upgraded to the ABG-79 radar uh, in the 2014 time frame. So from that period on, we have been regularly seeing objects off the coast, and that's continuing to this day, to my understanding. Uh, I'm curious to see whether we'll start to identify some of these objects off of this, um, these newly opened uh, radars that we seem to be ex- experimenting with off the uh, northern coastlines. Mm. 
If it is a foreign power technology from a China or a Russia or something, um, that being, I, I think, the most straightforward exp explanation, but there's still the, the question of mo motives. What, you know, what information would you expect that they're possibly, you know, gathering that their satellites can't already get when they're, you know, looking at images of American bases or missile capabilities? Um, I, I, my understanding is that's stuff the satellites can pick up. So, you know, what are they doing with the balloon? Well, whatever the specifics are that they're looking for, the fact is that they are willing to risk, you know, sending technology over here to take a look at it. So uh, regardless of what the specific, you know, point of interest is, uh, they're demonstrating that that capability and that desire already. Well, so, Ryan, but is that you. your, your, Go ahead, sorry, Baca. I was just going to ask, is that your, mo to your mind, the most plausible explanation for what they are is some sort of foreign technology? I don't think there's one answer for this. And I, I've been saying that for a number of years. As we look closer to what's going on around us in our skies, we are going to find enemy combatants and, and hostile nations potentially gathering information on our assets off our coast. Uh, but there are also a lot more interesting things going on as well. And as we start to explore uh, the foreign adversary piece, and we we'll catalog that and we move that through the proper channels, uh, we now have the proper channels with the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office to start to uh, funnel some of those ones that defy explanation. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And stay tuned for more Rising in just a minute. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul faced off with a top Biden official over whether the U.S. funds coronavirus research in China. Here's a little of the exchange in last week's hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Let's watch. It's estimated that between uh, 5 and uh, 18 million people died from COVID-19 worldwide. To a significant number of scientists, the evidence suggests that this originated from a lab leak in Wuhan. Does the State Department fund coronavirus research in China? Do we fund coronavirus? I don't believe so, but I don't know. I'll double check and we'll get back to you on that, Senator. The answer is yes, you do. And it's been going on for more than a decade. And it's done through a program called PREDICT and then the Global Virome. And why this is important is we had a million Americans die and we really haven't had any discussion of this. No hearings, nothing. People are unaware that they're even funding the research. We found out recently through the House unclassified report that money is going from the NIH to American universities to the, um, uh, uh, the Academy of Military Medical Sciences Research in China. We are subcontracting money and sending it over, but millions is coming from the State Department. Paul's latest line of questioning comes as questions remain about the origins of the COVID pandemic. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst urged Congress to stop doling out money to EcoHealth Alliance, a nonprofit that pumped millions into the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is thought to be one of the possible culprits responsible maybe for the coronavirus. Moreover, according to The Intercept, the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services released a report last week revealing the National Institute of Health gave $8 million to the Wuhan lab between May of 2014 and July 2021, which went toward coronavirus research. The IG advised the NIH to ban Wuhan lab from getting future grants. Um, yeah. How, who on earth could justify 
still giving them grant money. That, that is, that's frustrating that that's advice. That should be a mandate. Can Congress do some, something? Is, is someone awake at the wheel as we're flying the ship? I'm, now I'm thinking of it as an airship because we're still talking about <laughs> a spy balloons. But like, come on, no more funding. Like, a moratorium, please, on funding going to uh, labs that have conditions we have not verified are safe, that we have questions about whether the research being done violates the U.S.'s a protocol on, on, on how to handle high-risk research. Yes, let's stop doing that. My God, can you believe it that they would still be, still be doling out public funds for these research purposes at this laboratory? July 2021, <laughs> they were still giving them money. And it just speaks to, again, what we talk about a lot on this show, which is the collusion between the media the quote unquote scientific community, social media companies that made it absolutely verboten to talk about um, the Wuhan um, Institute of Virology because President Trump suggested that that might have been where the coronavirus came from. The minute those words exited his mouth, it became verboten to take that very plausible theory seriously. And then the collusion of all of these institutions of over-credentialed elites that hate him, you know, colluded together to, to make this possible. That is how this happened, because the media refused to have any kind of skepticism about it and refused to hold people accountable and refused to demand justice for the million Americans who were dying. Yeah, this really does seem like an example of Trump says one thing, so all right-thinking people must immediately go the other way, which is just such a frustrating tendency in the media, in policymaking, in the political realities in which we live. Um, it, it, look, there are people. I mean, that, the Intercept obviously is a is a progressive left outlet. Um, my former co-host Ryan Grimm works there. Has done a lot of good reporting on that subject as well. Uh, th look, there are a lot of people. The Washington Post raised serious questions before, I guess, before they started maligning anyone who thought, uh, who, who thought the lab leak theory had plausibility as like a racist or something. They thought it, it had some plausibility <laughs> to it. It, it is not. It, and, and even if you, you, you still think it's more likely than not that it didn't come from a lab, that's actually independent of, of the question of whether we should continue to fund high-risk research under lab safety conditions that we, we cannot verify. Uh, with people, you know, the, the, the reporting that ProPublica and others have done on, you know, whether bats are handled correctly in these places, whether things are cleaned down properly, whether the, the building itself rests on a safe foundation. These are, these are very pivotal questions that we have not gotten straight answers to. And the scientific community, including within the government surrounding, that surrounds um, the, what, what Dr. Fauci was in charge of, the NIH, is just so opaque about this. They, they, it's, they treat it like it's, a, like, it's an, like it's a religious enclave that you're not, you, know, you are not supposed to ask questions about because you're just, you know, you're just a peasant, you're just a serf. And it's really, uh, I, I think people are, have gotten very sick of that approach. And, you know, obviously, Dr. Fauci and others have ha now had to answer a lot of questions from uh, people like Senator Rand Paul about that kind of research. And I'm often not satisfied with what he says when he talks about how, well, yeah, there were exceptions were made. I don't quite remember exactly what they were, but they were probably made. What, you want me to remember everything I've signed off on? Um, that, that's not, that doesn't inspire confidence, I think. And this is a, you know, this is a huge issue with lives at stake, millions, billions of lives at stake. 
so I, I'm not, I, I'm alarmed that at the end of the day, it's like, we would maybe like you to reconsider potentially sending this money to this laboratory, maybe, if it's not too much of a problem for you, if it's not too inconvenient. I don't think that's the approach our, um, our, our, our scientific elite expert government consensus uh, should, that's not the position they get to take at this point. No, and again, it, it comes down to, you know, this looks like it's about politics, but as I'm always saying, it's actually about class. It's about an, a self-appointed clerisy, a self-appointed elite that has taken control of all of our institutions, ignoring the will of the people, and then having one of the parties solidly in the bag for them. And, and 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 protecting them from having any kind of responsibility towards the people that they impose these, you know, their their policies on. Uh, it's a real disaster. And I, I really think, you know, people who don't think that the coronavirus and the handling of it and the ignoring of regular people on behalf of an elite that enriched itself, largest upward transfer of wealth in American history, um, from the working and middle class to the elites, people who think that that's not going to come home to roost in 2024, they have another thing coming. And and it's sadly, it's not something President Biden has been great on either. You know, they say it's still a pandemic when they want to let millions of people in, you know, illegally in the southern border, you know, when when they when they want to, when they want to, have, you know, sorry, they say it's still a pandemic when they want to give um, student loan forgiveness to, mm -hmm. to, to college educated elites, but it's not a pandemic anymore such that you can keep out millions and millions of people illegally crossing the border. There's just like complete, you know, there's no leadership here. It's following from behind. Everything he does is in response to polls. And, you know, but it's just never enough. I mean, the American people are the ones who got us out of this pandemic. They were right from the start. And the more liberal a person was, the more into the restrictions they were. It was completely a, 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 an overlay of politics onto class. And, and that's going to come home to roost. Mm. No doubt about it. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Please stay with us. Twitter CEO Elon Musk's SpaceX has restricted the Ukrainian military's use of its satellite internet service, Starlink. SpaceX, Musk's company that designs, manufactures, and launches rockets and spacecraft, has been providing internet to Ukraine since last February through the Starlink satellite system. But according to SpaceX President Gwynne Shotwell, the service was, quote, never meant to be weaponized. She added, Ukrainians have leveraged it in ways that were unintentional and not part of any agreement. And Musk himself tweeted, Starlink is meant for peaceful use only. Hmm. Speaking of Elon Musk, last week Twitter was facing a widespread outage after many Many users received a message saying they had gone over the daily limit for sending tweets. When they attempted to post in what appears to be a glitch, Forbes writes, the daily tweet limit is 2,400 per day, according to Twitter's website. I don't know that I've ever exceeded it. Maybe you have. <laughs> Forbes reports that the outage appeared to peak around 5 p.m. Eastern when more than 9,000 outages were detected, yet more than 5,000 were still being reported after 6 p.m. Musk sent an email to Twitter staffers telling them to, quote, pause for now on new feature development in favor of maximizing system stability and robustness, especially with the Super Bowl coming up. Musk did not immediately respond to Forbes' request for comment. By 7 p.m., some users began tweeting again as features were partially up and running again, the New York Times says. Now, Robbie, I love that we're putting these two stories together because it really shows the role that Elon Musk plays <laughs> In our society right now, on the one hand, 
there's so much drama around Twitter, right? You know, there's just, just because so many people have so much emotionally invested in it and he's taken such a big public stand there. But on the other hand, you know, this Starlink has really changed the game for the Ukrainians. I mean, so much of what they do there would not have been possible without Starlink. And then having um, Elon Musk come out and say, look, you can't use this for drones anymore. That's not what it was designed to do. And I'm not going to allow my technology to be used in that way, in a military offensive way. Um, I think that that's really admirable. Um, and it just sort of shows the two sides of him, I think. You know, on the one hand, loving to be at the forefront of these cultural battles, pick, you know, taking up these big fights. Um, but on the other hand, you know, having a very serious and considered approach to the technology that he's created and how it's used. Hmm. This is so funny because you're usually uh, very critical of I Elon know. Musk and I'm somewhat <laughs> supportive at least of I think what he's trying to do on Twitter and here I disagree. Um, I, I think mm -hmm. it is not a good idea to shut off Ukraine's access to this, uh, to, to Starlink. I, I find the idea that he would try to uh, draw some line between its use. Well, this is using it for peace, and this is. I mean, the country is being invaded. So, of course, it, like by using the internet, it is object. It is fighting back in that invasion. Uh, and if you didn't understand that was what was going to be happen, uh, what was going to be happening, I, d I don't think you thought it through. But I have, I have no, I have no problem, and in fact, think it is good for for uh, Elon Musk, if he wants to, to offer this internet service to the people of Ukraine. Elon Musk, unlike the U.S. government, is a private actor. I, I think people are free to to give their own resources of their own volition if it, if it makes them money, if it's a good business deal, if it's just something they feel morally compelled to do. I think it's fine. Again, Ukraine is the victim of the invasion, so I, I think it is they have every right to defend themselves and if people want to freely exchange to support that that's fine what i object to is the us you know which is doing which is using our resources against our in, in many cases against the will of the american people and also do, doing it without having any kind of diplomatic plan to bring the the uh, the conflict to a close and in fact when you know Biden administration officials are are actually admitting what we're doing they suggest that the goal really isn't simply the defense of Ukraine but some kind of longer struggle to re remove or hope Putin falls from office which is very very uh, not well thought out and unlikely to happen so I object to all of that stuff I, I think it's perfectly fine and appropriate for Elon Musk to give them internet even if they're like that's how drones are being coordinated obviously so you feel that he doesn't have the right to say look i'm providing this service but only under oh no these no he conditions. has the right no i i, I absolutely of course uh -huh. he has the right we all have the right to use you know in whatever to marshal whatever resources that are ours on on ukraine's behalf or not do it if we don't feel like doing it I, I he doesn't have to do it but i don't think something has changed now that it's like oh i mean he again he can make whatever decision he wants but i find it a little silly to say that Oh, well, I, I'm not okay giving them this technology if they're using it to fight back. Like, they're being invaded, so of course they're using it to fight back. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I thought it was a really hmm. interesting and important distinction to say, look, you're, it's one thing to use it for defensive purposes. It's another thing to use it um, to, to, for drones, to, you know, to shoot drones p possibly into Russia itself. Um, I, it was also very interesting to me... Um, I don't remember if this was six months ago, eight months ago, Elon Musk tweeted out a proposal 
um, for how to end uh, the war in Ukraine, which I remember we discussed on the show and both of us thought this was a great proposal and probably going to be something along the lines of how this conflict ultimately ends. He said something, it was pretty close to actually the conditions Putin set for immediately withdrawing from Ukraine two weeks into the conflict. It was something along the lines of, uh, you know, Crimea stays part of Russia, the Donbass is an independent region and NATO commits to, uh, Ukraine commits to neutrality, to neutrality, not to, not to join a NATO. And um, he, the the um, the response from the Ukrainians, which they were tweeting, many of them while using Starlink, right, right. to tweet out their disgust at him. So, uh, one of the ambassadors just literally tweeted at him, "F you," to this man who has, from his own personal fortune, paid something like eighty million dollars in order to assist their war effort, simply for hazard, haz hazarding the idea that there's going to have to be some sort of diplomatic end to this, and this is sort of what it's probably going to look like. I remember feeling extremely disgusted with that response. Um, you know, just the lack of gratitude to this person who has done so much for you. And, um, you know, I remember in that moment, Robbie, having a moment kind of like what you just sort of alluded to. I was thinking to myself, don't make me defend Elon Musk. <laughs> like, I'm not the person to do that. But I felt really called to do so because, you know, I'm sorry if you've spent $80 million of your own personal fortune to provide a life-saving technology well, to I, a country right, under threat, you get to obviously. have a say. Like, you just, you do. You fought your way into that conversation. No, the Ukrainian <laughs> government should be grateful. Its ministers should not be yelling at Elon Musk because what he's done for them is absolutely incredible. I don't think he's obligated to do it. He doesn't have to do it. So that was a bad solution. Also, none of us have to listen to the most hawkish Ukrainian government officials, including Zelensky himself. None of us have to say, okay, yes, total war. We're going to have World War III over this issue. That is naive. That is something the U.S. government should not listen to. We should be doing some version of the Elon Musk plan. I think it's it's fine for people of their own volition to help defend Ukraine in the meantime. That, that meantime should be ending now. The U.S. government's role should be to help make the diplomacy happen. Like, that's the thing they're supposed to be doing. And, of course, they're marching lockstep with Zelensky and are humoring his idea that this is going to right. be a total war with Russia that will eventually result in Russia's defeat and the overthrow of the Putin regime, which we all know is not going to happen. And we would have questions about whether that was even desirable if it did happen, because who knows whether Putin would be replaced with someone who is friendlier to the West or, or you know, they could, we could have someone more unstable and more dangerous. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, I, and I, you know, I absolutely think the plan, again, the plan he put out, like you said, was very, was, was very good, was, was moderate, was probably something most people, again, what, where are the American people on this? I think they're in the, I, I don't think anybody is rooting for most people. They're not rooting for Russia to be, or for Ukraine to lose and be defeated and conquered, but they have some really valid questions about how long the U.S. is going to have this, any amount of money is, there, there, there's no end in sight, we're going to, keep funding this on, as long as it goes on, and we're not going to do anything to push for peace. I think that's something that's not acceptable to people and is actually part of what the Republican Party has, has seized on this right now better than the Democratic Party had made it a part of the leadership fight. And I think it's because they, unlike Democrats, are successfully on the pulse of the American people on this issue, not every issue, on this issue.
A hundred percent. Now, getting back to the much less important question of Twitter, I've yeah. also noticed that um, some people now seem to have the capability of tweeting more than 280 characters. You're seeing these like little paragraphs. It's sort of turning almost Tumblr-esque now. Um, I am extremely against this, Robbie. Where are you on this question? I mean, I don't like it either, but I assume this is going to be one of these changes, one of these social media tweaks where we all say this is terrible, this is the worst thing that's ever happened, I can't stand this, I'm gonna you know, shoot myself if I have to put up with this. And then like five days later, we'll all say, no, it's fine. <laughs> but we'll see. Yes, I remember I had that when Twitter went from 140 characters to 280 for a week, I was like, I will never tweet more than 140 characters. And then instantly, like, all of my resolve disappeared. I remember the new Facebook's news feed when that came out, I was like, what is this? This is crazy. <laughs> Who wants this? This is, and now it's, it's hard to even uh, imagine uh, the, the platform apart from the news portal. All right, that does it for us on this, on this subject. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Please stay tuned. The Florida Department of Education was accused of slander by the College Board on Saturday following ongoing criticism of its AP African American Studies course, which was being piloted in 60 high schools across the country. A letter from the State Education Department's Office of Articulation sent to the College Board in January said, in its current form, the course lacks educational value and is contrary to Florida law. Weeks later, the College Board posted the course curriculum online, which was now missing subjects of concern, including critical race theory, and the queer experience, black feminism, and others, the New York Times reported. The College Board apologized, saying, we deeply regret not immediately denouncing the Florida Department of Education's slander, magnified by the DeSantis administration's subsequent comments that African American studies, quote, lacks educational value, our failure to raise our voice betrayed black scholars everywhere and those who have long toiled to build this remarkable field. In their statement, they claimed, quote, we had no negotiations about the content of this course with Florida or any other state, nor did we receive any requests, suggestions, or feedback back, adding, quote, in Florida's effort to engineer a political win, they have claimed credit for the specific changes we made to the official framework, none of which they ever asked us to remove and most of which remain in the official framework. Mm. Not only did they not ask us to remove them, but they're still there. I don't know, Robbie, to me, this just smacks of um, a cover up. They, you know, the College Board was accused of caving to the DeSantis administration, yes. and now they're rushing to make it look like they were going to take, you know, queer feminism out of the curriculum from the beginning. Okay, well, then why was it there for in the first place? Who else objected to it that made them take it out? You know, I don't I don't I don't need DeSantis to get the win for this. But the point is, you have um, African-American studies. Pe people in the field will say to you, well, African-American studies is about so much more than African-American history. That's why the fact that Florida law mandates that students of all races learn black history and learn about the history of racism in America and learn about slavery and Jim Crow, that doesn't cover it because African-American studies extends so far beyond that. And the question is, okay, well, what beyond the history is it? Is it going to be critical race theory or is it going to be African-American culture, right? Is it going to be something that has real educational value or is it going to be the very things that they love to claim don't exist in high school classrooms, which we all know that they do. So right. I think they got caught with their pants down and now they're trying to make it look like, you know, they needed a big, you know, to, to have some sort of big statement against DeSantis and against, um, you know, the 
Florida Board of Education so that they could look like they weren't caving when actually, you know, they probably actually weren't caving, but they understood that if they wanted this course to exist, they needed to get rid of the critical race theory and the queer elements or it's not going to cut well, it. They, look, so, they sufficiently confused me as to whether they're caving. Uh, they said, <laughs> we will never cave, we will stand strong, but they took that stuff out. So then, so then I guess all criticism right, right. of them, like they, they really can't have this one both ways. All the criticism of them that, that DeSantis, you know, censor czar DeSantis took all this objectionable stuff out, I guess is not true, right? They were taking it out on their own. Is that what they're saying? It, I mean, really, it doesn't make any sense at all. They, they just got, they got criticized for not standing up to a, to a Republican governor. Uh, they got criticized by the mainstream media. So now they're in trouble. Look, I would have been fine with, um, I, I think, some of the things omitted from the curriculum. Like, I don't even care. I, if they want to teach that curriculum, I don't have any problem with it. I would probably question the role of the governor in, like, handpicking what subjects are to be to be instructed on. Although there's there's nothing you still can instruct or, or read the list of you know scholars who are no longer being included. They, the schools still can teach them. It's just not part of that official curriculum. Like it's a very it's sort of a very academic dispute. I think this was a new like AP curriculum that's being pioneered. Stuff goes in and out of those kinds of curriculums all the time. So this took on a very political lens. Uh, probably not necessarily. Uh, again, I would be fine with a school teaching it the way it is. I would be fine with the school teaching it, some other school teaching it not that way. Then we can see who scores better on the test and we can find out which, which way was better, right? Maybe, there's, maybe we can apply some objective criteria at this point to find out which version of the curriculum makes you better uh, prepared to succeed at, at college or in life. That would be kind of refreshing rather than just, just trying to guess, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the... Um Look, as somebody who spent a lot of time in academia, you know, kind of saw how the sausage was made, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens in college classrooms that would be very upsetting to many parents to know that their child is being exposed to that at the high school level. And, you know, we've debated about this before, Robbie. Someone has to make the decision about what is appropriate for kids to be studying and what is not, right? And I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it being the governor. I mean, it does seem, you know, to be pretty, going pretty high up the chain, but somebody is deciding what public school kids are being taught, someone in the government. That's somebody's job, right, to make sure that what they're studying is of educational value, right, that they're getting a good education. Now, you know, I'm sure you and I could agree that the much bigger problem is that, you know, huge, huge numbers of American children are not reading at grade level. They can't do math. They're not prepared for, you know, competing in the marketplace. That's obviously a much bigger problem. So I think the criticism that all this focus on critical race theory is a distraction that both sides are using to distract from the fact that our kids can't read, especially mm -hmm. poor kids, especially lower income kids, especially black and Hispanic kids, right? That we're sentencing children to downward mobility and, and reducing our ability to compete on the global scale, you know, that that's, I think, a valid criticism that all of this talk about education should be focused on. How do we get Baltimore kids to learn how to read? And that's totally valid. But what? I think it's also fair for parents to say, look, I don't want my kid learning critical race theory. And you keep promising me that they're not going to. And then it keeps slipping in and you have to take it out. I mean, I'm perturbed that the, I, like you, I am most perturbed that the public education system in the city of Baltimore or wherever it is, you know, we don't need to pick on Baltimore specifically, although it does have problems there, 
is not doing enough is not doing a good enough job teaching kids to read and to do math despite the massive amount of money they get public money to spend per student it seems grossly inefficient and they never get less money they always get more money and it's it's not working <laughs> they haven't figured it out they haven't cracked the code they're doing something wrong whereas other schools are succeeding other schools can educate kids for less money so yeah. uh, my magic solution would be well let's figure out what those schools are doing, or better yet, just let the kids go to those schools, take whatever the money is, and then go to that school that, that worked it out. And if that school has critical race theory, I don't really care. If it doesn't, I don't care. I would leave, I, so like you, I want, I want the ultimate decision maker to be the parent, and they should just be equipped to make that decision in, in consultation, hopefully, with their child. Um, and they need really need the money to be able to do that. But we spend tons of money on education. We just don't give it to the families and the children. We give it to the school system. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think, you know, as, a, as somebody who for a long time was a liberal and a leftist in good standing, and you're sort of, one gets committed to the idea of public schools, you want the public schools to be great. But when you ask parents, especially a lot of black parents, what they want, they want school choice. They want to be able to choose the school their kids go to. Charter schools have huge records of success. And we, you know, obviously we don't have to debate that right now. But yeah, I, I mean, obviously that's a huge part of the problem is it's like they keep sinking more and more money into these schools and they're still failing. And it's in nobody's interest to sit there and say, okay, what's going wrong here right like what, what where is the disconnect here of course there's different you know conversations we could have about where that is but it's obviously a huge huge problem and yeah. um you know i think which whichever political party decides it's going to stand for parents relationship with their kids and right now that seems like it's the republicans that's a that's a pretty winning issue i think it is a very winning issue. Look no further than Virginia, right across the river from me, where Glenn Youngkin, I think, absolutely prevailed on the strength of that issue. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, reporter at U.S. Right to Know Emily Kopp will join us, and we'll get into those COVID hearings that are going on on Capitol Hill. Plus, of course, Brianna Joy Gray will be back in studio. Wonderful seeing you this morning, Bacha. Thanks, Ravi. I'll be watching you tomorrow. Thank you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care, and I'll see you back here tomorrow.